That's good to see you all. Um, I am excited, uh, once again, I sent an email out about this, but I'm excited uh, that today we're starting a new series of uh, Genesis, first uh, three chapters of Genesis. Um, there's a lot in the first three chapters of Genesis um, in terms of, uh, you know, just foundations of our covenant theology. In fact, one of my former professors, uh, Dr. Lane Tipton, wrote a book, uh, which I'm it's one of the books I've used for this study, but it's called Foundations of Covenant Theology, and that's, uh, it's a book on the first three chapters of Genesis, and so um, a, lot of, a lot of really good stuff in the first three chapters of Genesis, and of course, we'll hit the creation account and things dealing with man and woman, being man and woman, what does that mean, and um, being made in the image of God, what does that mean, and of course, we're, we're going to look... Every week, hopefully, we'll see how uh, Christ comes out in, these, in this text. And so, uh, we're starting that today. Um, and just a heads up, what we're going to do today is we're not actually going to open up the book of Genesis today. Um, there's a couple of uh, items I want to hit in terms of uh, prologue, and so introductory matters, before we get into Genesis. And I think you'll understand why we do this. Uh, once we get into this, but uh, that's what, what we're going to be doing this morning is uh, uh, a sort of a prologue to this series, and so, um, and then uh, Lord willing, next week we'll start into Genesis proper, I guess, we'll actually look at Genesis chapter 1. Uh, well, before we start, let's uh, open up in prayer, and then we'll, we'll get going. Our Father and our God, we thank you for uh, so, so many things that you give us as we just celebrated Thanksgiving season. We are full of thanksgiving for all of uh, the blessings that you bestow upon your people, um, undeserved as uh, they are, and yet you freely give them to us. You shower your mercy upon us in Jesus Christ, and um, you've given us the kingdom. Indeed, you have given us all things. So we thank you, Father. We are full of Thanksgiving for all um, that you give to us. We pray that you would continue to make our hearts filled with contentment and thanksgiving in Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray that you would bless our time now uh, this morning as we uh, consider introductory matters to the book of Genesis. We pray, Father, that your spirit would be at work in uh, the listeners and that your spirit would be at work in the teacher and that Christ would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, I meant to bring a couple books that I'm using in case anyone's interested. I don't, I don't know uh, if you are. Maybe I'll do that uh, next time. I've got several books that I've been uh, diving into, uh, rereading, got some new books I'm looking at. Um, if you're interested in any of those, please feel free to ask me. Um, some of them, are, of course, are uh, a little bit more in-depth than others, uh, some of them more complicated than others. Um, the Tipton book, The Foundations of Covenant Theology, that's actually a very good one. Very, uh, it's a small book and easily accessible by anyone who's interested. Uh, that's a very good book. Again, he's one of my former professors at Westminster Seminary, uh, though he's no longer there. Um, and, and some others. Um, but I, I, I'll mention them next time. Hopefully I'll bring a couple. I can actually show you the physical books. Um, okay. Uh, by way of introduction, before we get into the first three chapters of Genesis, uh, the first thing I wanted to uh, put forward 
or one of the things I wanted to put forward is that we will be studying the book of Genesis from a Reformed perspective, obviously, right? So we're a Reformed church. Um, but I think it's important to note that because we are going to be studying um, the covenants from a Reformed perspective. So that we're going to be looking at Genesis 1 through 3 from a Reformed understanding of the covenants that God makes with his people, or the covenants that God has made with man. So, for example, the covenant of works, which we'll be looking at. Um, this will come down the line, but the covenant of works that God made with Adam. And then, of course, the covenant of grace after Adam fell into sin. And so that structure, that covenantal structure, by covenantal structure, will be assumed throughout our entire series Um, This also means, as we uh, assume the Reformed perspective, that we believe that God has been pleased to express himself to his people by way of covenant. And so if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 7, it refers to God's covenantal dealings with people, with man, as a form of his voluntary condescension. Right? God condescends to us. He stoops down to man. How does he do that? He does that by way of covenant. Um, And so in this series, we're going to think about the glory of God as God in comparison to the reflective glory in all of creation, including man. To put it in the words of the confession, we're going to look at the great distance between God and the creature and how that distance is bridged. So... Um, that's, that's the words of the confession if you look at chapter 7. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. We are created, we are changeable, we are fallible. And after Adam fell, we're sinful, we're unholy. How does a, a God such as this uh, relate to creatures? He does it by way of covenant. Uh, Cornelius Van Til um, as many of you know, um, he's one of our founding fathers, our denomination. Um, uh, he taught at Westminster Seminary and, um, uh, for a long time in the 20s, and um, we got a full dose of Van Til's uh, teaching when I was at seminary there. Uh, Van Til refers to this as the creator-creature distinction. And so in Van Til's mind, this is the Christian position expressed by Reformed theologians. So he says this. He says, This view is based on the creator-creature distinction. The self-existent God is the original, of which man is the derivative. And so Van Til states, Man must always think God's thoughts after him. Um, that's the Reformed position. That's, and Van Til would say that's the truly Christian position. That God is above and beyond us, that we are creatures dependent upon him, and yet that, that distance between us and God is bridged uh, by way of covenant. So we always distinguish between creator and, cre- creator and creature, and yet we never fully separate them. We, we affirm that God can relate to his creatures. So um, this is what Calvin says. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves. And there he was quoting Acts 17. We live and move and have our being uh, in God. Our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. 
You might think of also uh, Romans 11. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's the Reformed perspective. There's different perspectives. Uh, Ours is distinguished from those others. And so that will be assumed throughout the whole series. Uh, Stop there for a moment. Any questions on that? Thoughts? What do you think? Everybody good with that? Okay. Uh, uh, One thing... uh, the next thing I want to look at is God's word, the authority of God's word. Now, in order to fully appreciate and see the power of Genesis 1 through 3 for the rest of the Bible, in order to appreciate the power of Genesis 1 through 3 and for our understanding of really all things, we have to appreciate the supreme authority of God's word. You might think about John chapter 10, and... Um, you can, you can turn there if you like. You don't, you don't have to. But this is John chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. The Jews had picked up stones to stone Jesus. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works. He, they did that because he said, I and the Father are one. Um, he says, for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews say, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Now there he was quoting Psalm 82. Uh, He says, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now of course Jesus is making a a point about uh, their unbelief, about a man being equal with God and having the authority of God. He's quoting Psalm 82, but in the middle of that, he says, Scripture can't be broken, meaning the Word of God has the final authority on all matters of faith and life, all of our understanding of all things. Scripture cannot be broken. You might think of Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now notice there in Hebrews chapter 4 that the eyes of God are associated with the word of God that judges all things, right? Um, The judgment of God is is connected to the activity of his word. His eyes judge even as the word pierces. And so this word that the writer of Hebrews is referring to is not like other written words. It's living, it's active, it's associated with God's judgment. And so... Uh, we have to keep this in mind as we're going through the uh, creation account in particular. Science must always bow the knee to the authority of God's word. The discoveries of science, so long as they are made and recorded truthfully, right? Not all science is done truthfully or recorded truthfully, but so long as that science is recorded truthfully and, and examined truthfully, all of it reveals what? The activity of God's word. The activity of God's word in the world. God spoke the world into existence. 
We are told that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, when it snows or rains, right? This isn't just uh, happenstance, right? These aren't just coincidental uh, formulations in the clouds and the sky that just happen. It just happens to snow. It just happens to rain. It rains and snows by the power of God's word. So God's word is continually at work in the world. It's continually active, as Hebrews 4 says. You might think about uh, Psalm 147. He sends out his command to the earth, and so he speaks, right? His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He sends out his word and melts them. So you go outside and it's raining. You go outside, it's snowing. Uh, You know, lots of people might think, oh, scientifically, right? And of course, much of that is true. There's lots of scientific uh, processes that are at work uh, that God uses. They're secondary means by which he makes it snow and uh, rain. But it's God who does this. God makes it rain. God makes it snow. It's by the power of his word that anything happens. It's by the power of his word that we enjoy this day today. Um, And so it's ultimately up to him. And so um, we have to keep that in mind as we're going through uh, the first, uh, the book of Genesis, and we're looking at um, what Moses says about the world and its beginnings and what perhaps uh, unbelieving scientists or unbelieving philosophers say about the world and its beginnings. Um, So uh, one of the books I'm using is called Redeeming Science, and that's by uh, Vern Poitras. Uh, He is a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, He makes the ingenious observation that scientific laws and formulations are really just commentaries on the Bible, right? So you might think about the law of gravity, or you might think... uh, about some other law, you know, that, that is put in place by science, E equals MC squared, things like that. Uh, Poitras says that they're really just commentaries on the Bible rather than like the Bible itself. And so these scientific laws that are out there are not to be equated in terms of authority with the authority that the Bible has. They are secondary. Science, scientific claims are always secondary. Because they're made by men. Um, The stars, the planets, the galaxies, the moons of Saturn, the redness of Mars, the light, the heat of the sun, down to the tiny microscopic universes inside our own bodies, all of that reveals what? It reveals the beauty, the wisdom, the power, and the activity of the Word of God. All of it. Insofar as it's truthful. It reveals the wisdom and the power of God's word. And so we have to keep that in mind. The heavens declare the glory of God that day to day pours out speech. That's Psalm 19. Every single day, God's word is evident to everyone. His power, the wisdom of his word, the power of his word is evident to everyone. And so you think about this, guys. Um, You know, as as Christians, you know, we as Christians, we as Christians... We, can, we are the only group of people who can truly, I mean, really, really and truly appreciate 
the beauty in creation. We have the right interpretation of what we see in the world. Uh, when you go on you know, a trip and you, you're looking at different places, you're admiring the mountains or whatever it may be, the, the sunset, you're with other people sometimes, right? And they're in awe as well. They're dumbstruck at times at the, the beauty there. But if they're unbelievers... They don't truly understand why it's beautiful, or at least they suppress that knowledge, but Christians do. And so, for example, when we see a sunset, you know, you, sometimes you see a sunset and you're just speechless. It's like, it's just so beautiful. Or when you see, uh, um, or perhaps uh, you go to the ocean, right? Uh, if you've ever visited the ocean, you just stand there and you just immediately you just feel like, miniature, right? You feel very, very small. It's just so vast. It's so immense. You just feel immediately dwarfed. And so again, you're left somewhat speechless at the power of, of the ocean. You might think about a vast mountain range. What's the proper response to that, right? God's word. What does God say about this beautiful creation that we appreciate? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. That's the proper response to a sunset or a sunrise, the mountain range. It reveals the glory of Christ, really. It's the word of God by whom all things are made and through whom they consist. And so Christians have the right interpretation of this world. Now, you and I may not know the intricacies of how these things work, right? That the scientific laws behind some of these things. But nevertheless, we know we can truly appreciate um, um, their beauty and their power and the wisdom. And so, again, just to um, reiterate here, uh, we need to appreciate the authority, uh, the supremacy of God's word. And we'll talk about more about this in the next in this next section here in, in a minute. But. Um, you know, we have, to, we have to let the Lord correct our thinking, I think, on some level. Because we're born into this generation, we're born into this atmosphere that we, in which we live. And what is that atmosphere? It's, it's a very uh, rationalistic atmosphere. It's very scientific. And so everything is defined and, and interpreted and explained by... Uh, man-made laws and by some type of mechanical robotic system that, that unbelievers think is governing the world. Um, all that's not true, right? Those, those laws um, are, so long as they're faithful, they might be commentaries on how God sustains the world by his word, um, but they're not primary. They're, they don't have supreme authority in everything. And so, um, you know, we, we, the air we breathe is one in which evolution sits on the throne, right? Uh, the doctrine of evolution, uh, it sits on the throne of, of all science books, all, I mean, everything, right? It's just there, it's assumed. Um, and so, on some level, I think, even for us as Christians, even though we don't believe in a lot of those things, 
we do still have to let God correct our thinking in some of them so that we can properly see the glory of God at work in the world. And I think even as Christians, we still miss that. We still miss, I think, the, the day-to-day operations of, of Christ in the world, in creation, of the Word of God, right? And so hopefully we can recover that as we go through this uh, series. Any questions or thoughts on that? What do you guys think? Yeah, Levy's, Jeff, first. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, Carolyn mentioned Psalm, uh, Psalm eight. Let's just read that for that is a good one. Yeah, Psalm nineteen. Mm-hmm. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. And when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, you care for him, right? So the heavens are the, the work of God's fingers, as it were. Uh, very good. Yeah, Jeff, did you want to add to that? Yeah. Yep, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pours out speech, right? So God is never silent, He's never silent in the world, ever, with all men, believers and unbelievers alike. Um, All men hear God speak in the world when they look out into creation, even when they think about their own being, when they think about their own bodies. And so uh, the proof of God is everywhere. Um, His evidence is, is made known. Yes, anything else? Yeah, Mike. That's true. Yeah, so Mike uh, brings out the idea of presuppositions. And so um, what do we as Christians presuppose is uh, the nature of reality, is upholding reality, has brought forth everything into existence. Our presupposition is what we just explained, right? That it's upheld by God's word, that it was brought into existence by God and by his speaking things into existence. Um, other people have presuppositions as well, right? So they may presuppose that um, you know, evolution is truth or uh, Buddhism is truth or whatever it may be. And so we have to keep that in mind as we're defending the faith, right? Anything else? Yes, yeah, sure. Sure. Sure.
Yeah, that's a great point. Actually, Poitras, uh, Poitras in his book makes the same point that uh, scientists uh, have to they have to believe in God's word. They have to believe in God's law in order to make their laws. Right? There has to be a foundation. Um, even though they suppress that knowledge if they're unbelievers, right? Um, there has to be a, a foundation of truth upon which to stand. Um, and so he, he, Poitras actually uh, says in his book that scientists have to believe in God in order to make their laws, which is essentially what Robbie Zacharias is saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Thank you, Shara. Anything else? Yeah. Jean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, yeah. So Isaac Newton, uh, other scientists of, of his day, um, yeah, were were not necessarily. They weren't endeavoring to overturn, you know, the Christian beliefs about creation in the in the world. They were actually wanting to discover something of God's glory there. And, but of course, you know, men pervert everything, and so. Uh, that's this is where we are. Okay, well, let's keep going. Um, so we got to keep keep those things in mind: the, the supremacy of God's word and the reform perspective on on Genesis one through three. Um, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith states that the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture is the supreme judge in all things. At the same time, we must also recognize that God, in His wisdom, has chosen to use men to reveal his word in the Bible. So we're talking about the Bible and Genesis. You might think about 2 Peter 1 where he says that uh, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? So you see there that God has chosen to use men to write the Bible. The Apostle Paul, we're going through Philippians in the morning. Uh, Matthew in the evenings. John, other... Uh, writers of scripture. So God is not like, um, and when he used these men, um, he did not shut them down completely so that they're like robots, right? This is not like your conversations that you have with Siri on your iPhone, right? It's an actual robot. It's not a person. Um, uh, this is not the way, the way in which we're to look at the writers of scripture. The writer of Genesis, for example, is Moses. When God inspired Moses to write Genesis, he did not shut down Moses. God used his personality, his history, the styles and methods that Moses chose to use to communicate Genesis to his people, right? And so Moses's stamp is all over Genesis because he's the secondary author. Moses is the primary author, but um, Moses is there, right? And so the end result is, has the authority of God's word. We're dealing with the supreme judge of the universe speaking to us in Genesis. But in his wisdom, he's chosen to use Moses. And so the Holy Spirit is the primary author. Uh, but Moses is the secondary author. And we have to reckon with that. The fact that Moses is the author of this book. Why? Because this book, the first of the Torah, the Torah is a Hebrew 
word for law, which just stands for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the first five books of the Bible. This book, Genesis, is the first of the Torah. When was it written? Well, it was written by Moses. Well, when was it written? Well, it was written at or around after the time of redemption of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so this book is part of the covenantal administration of Moses at Sinai, right? So there's two things to appreciate here. Genesis, first of all, it serves as a kind of preamble to the covenantal documents given to Israel. You might think about Deuteronomy, right? Genesis is connected to Deuteronomy. It's part of the first five books of the Bible. What is Genesis, what is the relationship of Genesis to Deuteronomy? Well, it's kind of like an introduction, a preamble. It's a beginning, right? It's an, uh, we don't have any teenagers in here. Uh, but we could call it an origin story, right? Uh, from uh, you know, the Marvel movies, the Marvel s- stories. There's always an origin story surrounding some of the characters. This, this is what Genesis is. It gives us beginnings, in the beginning. That's what Genesis literally means, is the beginning, what happens in the beginning. And so it serves as a preamble to what came later, which is the covenantal treaty that God made with his people, uh, namely in Deuteronomy. Uh, and so that's, that helps us understand, or it should help us understand these chapters. Secondly, the audience is Israel. This is a people living in the ancient Near East around 1500 B.C., right? And so people very different from us, like us, like us in many ways, but also very different from us, right? This is God's servant Moses writing a, a beginning of his covenantal dealings with his people to a people at a certain time in history. These people that Moses is writing to don't think like us. In all, in all ways, right? And the intentions behind Genesis aren't the same that we might think when we come to Genesis, right? And so we might approach Genesis and be looking for all the mysteries revealed to us about creation, right? Tell us exactly how you created the universe, God. Give us all the details, because we're, we're hearing all this stuff from evolution and all these other philosophies. And so we open up Genesis and that's what we want. But that's not necessarily the, the intention of Genesis. Make sense? Um, okay. And so uh, that also should help us understand um, some, some of what we're going to be looking at in, in Genesis. Uh, lastly, uh, we would do well to appreciate that Genesis is part of the preparation for the coming of Christ. Right? Genesis exists because God had chosen to save a people for himself, you and I. We're not the only ones. Um, he's chosen and saved people from all, every generation. But Genesis exists because God has chosen to redeem you and I from slavery to sin. And how did he do that? He did that by our Redeemer, the lone Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so in studying Genesis, we will learn about Christ. That's the hope, right? This isn't just, uh, this, isn't, this isn't a series just to, you know, prick our curiosities, right? To kind of satisfy some of our curious questions about uh, creation or what, what have you. This, 
We want to learn about Christ. Hopefully that is, that's the end goal. And hopefully we'll see that come out even in the very beginning, even before he came into the world as a man. Uh, he's present. His, his, the substance of who he is is present there. And so you think about this. Now, is it any wonder then uh, where Genesis ends up? Can anyone remember where, where we end up at the end of Genesis? Egypt, right? What is Egypt like to Israelites? What's that like to an Israelite? What, what would they have thought of being in Egypt like? Vacation? <laughs> Enemy, territory, I guess. Enemy territory, okay. I mean, these are people that are destined for the promised land, right? A land flowing with milk and honey where God is worshipped in all ways. What's Egypt to them? What's the opposite of that, right? It would be a desert place, a place of death. That's Egypt. If you flip over to the end of Genesis, that's exactly where we end up, in a coffin. Joseph is buried. His coffin is actually mentioned. God's people are in Egypt, in a grave, essentially, right? Now, if that doesn't remind you, or if that doesn't at least spark your thoughts about what happened to Christ, um, it should, right? Um, so you can see there already, the Genesis as a whole, we have the spirit, the, the glory of Christ coming out. Right? You have God's people chosen and they end up in a grave at the end of the book. Um, and so, uh, of, course, and of course, they don't stay there. And that's the point, again, of Genesis and that's the point of Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy. They don't stay there, they're redeemed. But ultimately, it's about Christ. Um, these people... Um, this is a record then of the beginning of a holy people. These people are so designated holy because of their God who called them and because of the servant of the Lord who leads them. Of course, that was Moses in their day, but ultimately it would be Christ. Genesis then is a record of the beginning point of a people called by a God who had no beginning. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so... We need to keep all these things in mind as we approach Genesis. There's going to be lots of stuff that's going to come at us. Um, lots of questions probably. I anticipate a lot of, a lot of questions. Um, if we keep these things, I think, in mind, we'll, we'll, I think we can stay within, within our proper boundaries and, and, and get uh, much more out of this, uh, this series. Any questions or thoughts on that? What do you guys think? Everybody good? Yeah, Brian. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's a great question. That's an excellent question, Brian. So the question is, he's asked me to expand upon the idea of Egypt being a grave, right? Uh, in in the, the minds of the Israelites, right? A type of grave. Um, well, let me just read the end of Genesis. This is Genesis 50, verse 26. So Joseph died being 100, 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's... that's um, and uh, at this moment, God's people are in Egypt, right? And so, um, I think that's a great question, Brian. I think the best way to answer that, to think about it, is this: is um, you know, to think about Egypt as a grave in a, in a lot of ways for God's people, as a place of death, spiritual death, even. You know, God is not worshipped there. A place that they came out of. They were redeemed from, right? They were brought back from the dead, from that place. Um, that, you know, I would argue that's certainly true, and I think that's present there with Joseph being in a, in a coffin in Egypt. Um, and then, you know, we can look at other places where Egypt is referred to as the furnace, you know, furnace of fire or whatever. Um, uh, I think that, that, you know, that's from Scripture, that's true, right? But there's other themes that are happening while they're in Egypt, too. So there's death and resurrection that props up again and again while they're in Egypt. So you had talked about, you know, well, if Egypt is a grave, then why is it that, you know, bringing his people to Egypt was a way in which he saved them because there was a famine, right? And Joseph was there by God's providence, and had he not been there, the Israelites might have died, you know. So that is true, too. So what you said is also true, that while they're in Egypt, as God is bringing them there, there is also a theme of salvation going on, you know, in a, in a subset fashion, right? So Joseph is a type of Christ in all that he does. Um, and we're going to see that, uh, uh, hopefully in this series, but overall, when you think about the, the whole story of redemption, right, which is about redemption ultimately from the devil and sin, right, um, as great as the redemption from Israel was for the, for the Israelites, that's ultimately not what it's really about. It's about s- slavery from sin, right, a greater Pharaoh, devil, the devil, and that's what happens with Christ. And so overall, I think it's proper to say, from a scriptural standpoint, it's proper to, uh, to look at Egypt as a kind of grave when you're looking at the whole story of redemption. But within that story, right, as they're going there, while they're there, I mean, there's all, there's miniature stories, right? There's miniature revelations of um, pictures of Christ, death and resurrection and redemption all throughout. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Jeff. Yeah. 
Yeah, even his bones come out of, out of place, right? Yeah, very good. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. Yeah, so um, yeah, so that's hopefully what we'll see uh, throughout, throughout this. Um, we'll learn more about Christ. Any, anything else? Any other questions or thoughts? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time you've given to us. We thank you for your word and uh, for your beautiful creation that reveals your wisdom and power. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would uh, guide us by your spirit as we go through these uh, chapters and uh, that you would magnify your son in our hearts and our minds. Father, prepare us now for worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you all.